please remain standing as I read this morning's passage of Scripture from Genesis chapter 39. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to, began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If your kids haven't gone down the hall, this would be a great time to take them programming down there that way. And for the rest of you, welcome to the 11 o'clock service. We're glad if you're joining us on Facebook, uh, online, and uh, we are just glad you're here. Today we are ending a series that we've called Wrecked, and it's on the seven deadly sins. And we have gotten through all but one, right? Uh, pride, envy, sloth, greed, anger, gluttony. We've talked about all of those. These are seven ways that we assault ourselves, uh, seven ways that we assault those around us and the world as a whole that have come to be known as the seven deadly sins because they are deadly. And, and that's the important thing that we've emphasized every week. If we leave these without opposition in our life, then they will wreck us. And so each week we've had this kind of ongoing question, how do we wreck the sin in our life before the sin in our life wrecks us? And one of the things that we stumbled on one of the weeks was this, that as we talk about sin, we also need to talk about this truth, that sin should never be the first word or the last word about us. The first word and the last word about us should be God so loves us. And that, that idea, that truth will help keep us not just alive, but alive in the best possible way. And so we come to the end of the series with this idea, uh, the deadly sin of lust. And some of you are saying, finally, one, of, one that's interesting. Um, sloth, we might sleep through, right? But lust, everyone's wide awake for this one. Uh, if you were here some of those first Sundays toward the beginning of the series uh, and saw the list of deadly sins that we were going to cover, I want you to be honest. When, when you scanned down through them, there were some of them that you dismissed pretty easily as not applying to you. Oh, pride, mm, eh, maybe. Anger, not for a while. Gluttony, just on Thanksgiving, and that hasn't happened yet. Sloth, I work out. I mean, you know, at the beginning, tell the truth. This is a safe space, okay? You didn't think you had much of a problem with most of the seven until your eyes fell on this one. Lust is a different story. Hey, when are they doing that one? Uh, we, don't, we, we got something going on that week, right? We got to change the air in the tires or something like, like we. Why are we all in that boat today? It's because sex will come at us all. It is unavoidable. Uh, Ian Johnson and his wife, Bethany, and their little uh, son, Cooper, uh, came to visit. They were on staff with us. Um, a lot of you remember Ian and Bethany and 
they came to visit Wednesday morning, and uh, we were, you know, greeting them and, and having a good time catching up. And he said, I've, I've kept up with the series that you're doing. I think the Rex series is really cool. He said, what is up for this Sunday? And I said, lust. And he laughed, and he said... <laughs> He said, I remember a time when I was a kid, maybe I was junior high school, maybe seventh, seventh grade or so, and the minister of our church gave a sermon on sex, and he remembers that the minister saying at the end of the sermon, he said, all of the married people in the room had a homework assignment for the week, and Ian is a seventh grader, he knows what's coming, he's cringing a little because he's sitting right by his parents, right? Sure enough, the assignment is to go home and to have sex every day of the week. It gets better. Then the preacher said this, if you understood the assignment and complete the assignment, then I want you to wear red to church next Sunday. And Ian's like, all week long, he's pleading in his mind, please, mom and dad, please don't wear red to church. I don't want to know that you understood the assignment. Sex comes at us, right? It doesn't matter where you are. You could even be in church, even if you're in seventh grade, right? It is unavoidable. In our text today, Genesis 39, we have a scene from this story that you might be familiar with, and Joseph is a guy that's doing great. We should say he's doing great for having been sold into slavery by his 11 brothers. Joseph is doing great. He was bought by a rich man named Potiphar. And he had proved himself so much to Potiphar that by the time this story happens, Joseph isn't just a common slave anymore. He has built up so much trust and confidence that Potiphar has put him in charge of his entire estate. Joseph has come, become COO of Potiphar Incorporated. And so uh, Joseph, it's the very least we, thing that we could say about him that he's doing great because he's overcome so much. He's achieved. He's made lemonade out of lemons. But just when everything was good, sex came. Lust presents itself to Joseph. And like Ian, as a seventh grader, he wasn't looking for it. He wasn't seeking it out. But it came at him anyway. And from the story, uh, we can use kind of the same outline that we've been taking each week with all the other deadly sins. What is lust? What is, uh, why is it deadly? And then how can we wreck this monster of lust before it wrecks us? And we get answers from Potiphar's wife and from Joseph and from God himself. So what is lust? Let's first look at Potiphar's wife. Here's what the text says. Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. Uh, another translation says this, he was well-built and handsome. Uh, the Hebrew literally is he was chiseled. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, but he worked out, right? Okay? And it's worth noting here that no other male in all of Scripture is ever described like this in this way. Joseph wins the sexiest man in Scripture hands down. Paul Rudd wouldn't even have a chance uh, against him. There is one female in Scripture that is described this way, the exact same phrase, and do you get, can you guess who that female is? It is Joseph's mother, Rachel. And so beauty really is in the genes. And so we understand why Potiphar's wife casts her eye. It means that 
she lifted Joseph up. She carried him on a cloud, kind of. She, she bared him up in her mind. She lifts her eyes up on Joseph. It means that she's carrying him around in her mind all day long, carrying him in not the, I'm so thankful that we have somebody like Joseph managing our affairs kind of way, but instead in a soap opera-ish kind of way, maybe Joseph would give me a more exciting life than the one I currently have with Potiphar. What if it was me and Joe instead of me and Poe? Thank you for that. Appreciate that. What's she doing? She, she is fantasizing, right, of what life might be like with Joseph in all the ways that it's possible to think of, and that is lust. And so before we get negative about this thing, we have to say right up front that on the surface, on the most basic level, Potiphar's wife is only doing what she's designed to do. We have said each week as we've looked at these seven deadly sins that each one takes a good thing that God has given us and it distorts it, it twists it, mangles it up. So at the core, we see in Potiphar's wife actually a good thing. It's gone wrong, but it's a good thing. And we'll get to why it goes wrong, but let's start with the good that's actually there. And we'll say this, sexuality itself is not sinful. For all the bad press the Bible gets about this subject, Scripture actually has the highest view of sexuality that you can find. It will never say that sexual desire in and of itself is a sin or polluting or defiling, and we could have a few fun thoughts with this. We could go to Genesis and Proverbs, Song of Songs. Let me just do Genesis, okay? God makes in Genesis chapter 2, male and female, he creates sexuality, he steps back from it, and he says, it is good. And he tells these two sexual people that he's just made to enjoy themselves and be fruitful. And in Genesis chapter 2, we actually get this part where Adam looks at Eve and he breaks out into song. Girl, you're every woman in the world to me. You're my fantasy, you're my reality. Anybody? Air Supply? If you're too old for Air Supply, think that the uh, Righteous Brothers, okay? If you're not old enough for Air Supply, think John Legend, all right? And you'll get there. He's singing this song to this woman. Now, don't forget that as this man is singing the greatest love ballad ever to this woman, they are both naked. They are. So, <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm so glad my family is, uh, you know, entertained this sermon. Um, we, we start in a perfect tropical garden with a naked woman or a naked man singing songs about a naked woman and how great it is to be there. And God says, yes, this, this. And that's just the start. We could go to Proverbs, we could go to Song of Songs, we could uh, laugh some more, we could make everybody blush some more, but the, the scriptures proclaim that there is this exuberant joy in the glory of sexual love, and there's no way you can get a negative view of the ingrained sexual desire that God placed in each one of us out of the Bible. And that's why, traditionally, when the list of the seven deadly sins has been discussed, Lust never usually finds its way to the top of the list. Now, that's news to some of us today. As we've gone through this list, 
Didn't it seem like each week, whatever sin we were dealing with was suddenly the worst, right? Like there was this war for what the worst one was. They're all the worst, pride, envy, they're all the worst. Maybe this is because of all of the other sins that we've talked about, pride and greed and anger and envy, all of those, all of those involve on some level putting yourself in the center of of existence in order to trample on other people. And our hearts weren't built for that. But our hearts were built to love. You were built for sexual desire. And so lust is not a sin of malice, but a sin of weakness. And we see that kind of distinction in the way that Jesus himself treats people who are caught up in lust and and sexual sin. Jesus has mercy on them. He has compassion on them. Uh, There are prostitutes that he has compassion on. The woman at the well who was on her fifth man and who was not currently married to that man, he has compassion and mercy on the woman caught in adultery, compassion and mercy. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that even the woman with the jar of oil or perfume who came to Jesus actually worked in the red light district, and the jar of oil would have been a tax write-off for her. It would have been a tool of her trade, but she anoints Jesus as the Messiah. When Jesus railed against sin, his go-to topics were pride or the abuse of power or hypocrisy or leveraging the idea of God for one's own gain or for the neglect of poor people. People today are overwhelmingly unified in this idea that the church is a place obsessed with shaming sexual sin. And maybe we would, should learn a lesson from Jesus and take a note from him. Maybe we should take his lead in having compassion and mer- showing mercy on people who are caught up in this sin. Now, all of that to say, uh, all of that is not to say that we shouldn't care about sexual sin. There are great, great reasons to get upset about sexual sin. So Jesus, when he did talk about it, was super forceful with his words. One of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture is when Jesus addresses this idea of lust. He says this, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That that text, oh, that's such an obstacle to us. What what does he mean? Is he really, I mean, dismemberment? Is Is that where we're going here? Really? And he talks this way. Because he's serious about the destructive power of lust. The point is that this is nothing to play around with. You are better off losing your hand than losing your soul. And sexual sin can cause you to lose your soul. I've seen this over and over in my time. I know that this is true. 
People say all the time, I want to have sex. I want, I, I should be able to have sex with whoever I want to, whenever I want. And so if God is in the way, then I'll just get rid of God. Done. Simple. I see it all the time. And you've seen it too. For every person who loves Jesus but trips up and gives in to lust, there are 10 people who reject Jesus altogether so that they can give in to lust whenever they want. And lust becomes their God. Sex becomes the controlling factor of their life. And the question whether they know to ask it or not is this, in the end, will sex be the salvation that I'm looking for? And the answer Jesus gives is no. It will not. And so to quote one author, lust isn't the worst sin. It's just the most popular one. What it lacks in punch, it makes up for in pounds. And so try to avoid it all you want. Sex will come. After you ate turkey this last Thursday, maybe you went shopping. Sex was in the window, was it not? We can't go eat chicken wings without sex showing up. Sex is on Snapchat and TikTok. It's in the movie. It's in the music. It's in that TV series that everybody's into. Try to read the new bestseller, Sex Will Be There. Try to watch something even halfway family-oriented and sex will show up in the commercials. It's not the worst. It's just the most popular. And so maybe, like the story of the tortoise and the hare, Maybe it does eventually win the race for the most deadly. So we have to be careful. We have to be on guard. And so let's add to sexuality itself is not sinful, this idea. Sexuality out of bounds is deadly. Potiphar's wife was not on guard. She was exactly the opposite. This, this is not the beautiful gift of God's sexual uh, nature that he gives us playing out, it's absolutely something else. It's something out of bounds. She's taking a good gift and turning it into something poisonous and destructive. And so if there is this good desire that God has put inside each one of us, and if that desire can then be directed so that it doesn't bring life, but it instead brings death, then how do we know the difference? When does natural sexual desire become disordered lust? And as we dive into that topic, let's remind ourselves of the intent of sex. A uh, quick, simple recap. Number one, sex is for love. It's this uh, glue for a marriage relationship so that it bonds two people spiritually and physically and in every other way possible. Number two, sex is for life, uh, to procreate, right? Sexual activity is about new human life. It's about family. It's about future generations. Now, look at Potiphar's wife in this story. Clearly, there's no family planning going on here in her actions. This is not about future generations or starting a family. What she's doing is not about life. Secondly, it's also not about love. This was not a scene where she's coming at Joseph with the question, hey, what's the most loving thing that I could do for Joseph right now? Because that's what love does. Love gives. Love asks, what's best for you? That's not here. What is here is lie with me. What I'm concerned with right now is what I want. I don't care what's good for you. Give me what I want. It's about me. Lie with me. Also, don't miss this, that it's not a one-time event. Day after day, 
she spoke to Joseph. And so there would have been flattering words. There were blunt words. Come to bed with me. Joseph didn't have to guess what she was after. He refused, but his no is never taken seriously. Potiphar's wife continually reopens this issue until one day she gives him a full-on assault and she goes a step further than just words and she starts tearing his clothes off of him. He's not going to do it himself and so maybe if I start the process for him, then he'll finally give in. He does not do it and he escapes out of the house. And then finally, note what lust brings. As Joseph runs away, this woman realizes that she's lost. She, she has lost the game. She has been rejected by her fantasy, and she is left holding his clothes, and humiliation turned to, turns into shameful uh, scorn. And she turns and she attacks the very thing that she was pursuing just moments before. She gathers some of her people around, and she says, look what he did to me. He came at me. When I cried out, he knew he was caught, and so he fled away, leaving his clothes behind. I am the victim here. And that scene drives us to the center of what lust is. It's captured in a few ideas. And here's where our normal, healthy sexual desire steps over the line and becomes disordered lust. Number one, when it's out of control. And you can see it in Potiphar's wife. She's in the grip of her sexual passion, and she can't stop day after day. Uh, Even when she's given the strongest kind of no that Joseph can give, she can't help herself. And she's married. Don't remember, don't forget that. Potiphar, her husband, is never in her thoughts. Only Joseph in her mind is, I've seen you, Joseph. I have this fantasy in my head about you. I want you. And she chooses to take the fire out of the fireplace and put it in her lap instead. And when you light fires in places not designed for fire, people get burned and things get damaged. And just like a fire spreads, this this thing called lust, there's no other natural appetite that can get so obsessive and damage so severely and so quickly Lust is sexual desire out of control. Here's number two. When it's without a promise. Probably the most important point today is this one. Lust is to desire pleasure without a promise. In verse 8 and 9, Joseph refuses Potiphar's wife's advances. And one of the reasons that he gives is this. You are his wife. And so let's put that another way. You are not mine is the same way to put it. And that tells us a couple things. Number one, Joseph recognizes that she is married, which means she's already made a promise, and that promise she's made is to someone else, Potiphar. So this, whatever you're wanting this to be, it's wrong. The promise you've made is to him. But further, here's the second thing we need to understand. You are not mine, right? Also means that even if she wasn't married to Potiphar, this thing would still be wrong because there would be no promise between the two of them. You're not mine means there's no promise between us. And here's the thing that is crystal clear in Scripture that Joseph is affirming. Sex is designed and given by God 
to be always and only between one man and one woman in a complete, exclusive, permanent commitment called marriage. And when it's taken out of that holy promise, it's destructive. I wish I could talk more about that. Ask me later, okay? Here's number three, when it's without another person. Lust is pleasure out of control. It's pleasure without a promise. It's also desiring pleasure without a person. In love, you want a person. In lust, you just want the pleasure. You're just after an it. Love is wanting a person. And so in love, if you have to forego pleasure for the person, so be it. Because it's the person that's non-negotiable. It's pleasure that is expendable. But lust is exactly the opposite. It's wanting pleasure, and a person is just a necessary commodity to get there. It's pleasure that is non-negotiable. It's the person that is expendable. There's a sobering quote by C.S. Lewis. It goes this way. We use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. And how much he cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude for her five minutes after fruition. What did Potiphar's wife really want? Not Joseph. We see that in the way that she reacted when he did refuse her. She wanted the pleasure. She wanted the affirmation. She wanted the experience. And when she couldn't have it, she turned murderous. And so lust only sees what someone can give. Lust discards people. It doesn't need them. You know what she calls Joseph at the end? She calls them not by his name, but by his standing. He's just a lowly Hebrew slave. He's not Joseph anymore. He's low class. He's socially rejected. He is to be scorned, a Hebrew slave. And it's easy for her to say these things about him because all she wanted was his body, not him. Lust is desiring pleasure without a person. And so why is lust deadly? We can go through this pretty quickly. Uh, it dehumanizes people. When people become nothing but a prop, then it does not honor the fullness of our sexuality as whole per persons. It lies to us. Lust says, oh, it's just me. I can keep this hidden. I won't hurt anybody. That lie, lie, lie. Here's a big one. I won't be a happy person without sexual fulfillment in my life. That's a lie. We don't want to believe it's a lie, but it's a lie. It's giving me the real intimate pleasure that I'm chasing after. It's a lie. It's only giving you the cheap imitation of the pleasure that God has in store for you. So it dehumanizes, it lies, it shames, it leads us, leaves us with self-loathing. Nobody ever feels good after. We are so disappointed in ourselves, ashamed of what we've done. And so now we need to medicate that a little bit. We need to feel a little better, bit better about ourselves. And so guess what we do? We go right back to the thing that we think will give us pleasure, and we do it all again. It breaks relationships. 
The physical act that is designed to glue two people together rips people apart, and I mean people as in many, many people. Look at the story. Who got wrecked here? Joseph got wrecked. Potiphar himself gets wrecked. His wife gets wrecked. Are there kids in the story? We don't read of them. That doesn't mean they're not there. They get wrecked. The people who are a part of Potiphar's business, who loved Joseph as the boss, now he's gone. The relational effects of sexual sin ripple beyond our ability to see them. So, how do we wreck this thing, this monster, before it wrecks us? Uh, The first place I want you to look is at Joseph. Sin makes sexual desire such a powerful force. And I want you to see how Joseph handles it. First, he he controls his actions. This is a kind of obvious one. The text says he just refused to be with her. Not just refused to go to bed with her, but he refused to be with her. He stayed away from the temptation. I don't know about you. I think we would all agree Lust seems to reappear at the same time and in the same environments, in the same ways. And one of the obvious things to do is to set up guardrails when it comes to those times and those places and refuse to be with them. Here's number two. He controls his thoughts. This is more important than the action because the thought leads to the action. Look what he says. He says, how can I then do this wicked thing? And what he's referring to is the promise that we talked about earlier. We're not married. How then can I do this? And what is he doing? He's thinking. He's reminding himself of the reasons that God gave sex to people for life and to love. He's thinking through the truth that God intends sex to unite two people in marriage. And he realizes that this will not unite two people. It will pull lots of people apart. And I will not be responsible for the damage this will do. I will not tear apart what God has joined together. There's, there's a reason that's at every the end of every wedding. Remember, even if, even if she weren't married, this still would have been the response. Sex is to seal up and glue a promise made. It's never intended to come before the promise, before the covenant of marriage. And when it does, it wrecks souls and bodies. And then look also what he says. He says, how can I do this thing and sin against God? If you look closer here, you could kind of pick apart really easily who this would have been a sin against. Would it have been a sin against Potiphar? Absolutely. He's the unsuspecting husband, right? For sure. What about Potiphar's wife? Would it have been a sin against her? Yeah, it's not hard to say that in giving, uh, in, in, giving in, Joseph would have been doing her a disservice and sinning against her. That's not hard to say. How about himself? Would he be, have been sinning against himself? Absolutely. He would have been sinning against his own body. But He doesn't point to any of those things. He points to God. This is a sin against God. How is this a sin against God? It's because one goal of sex is to to unite in totality two bodies and souls who are pledged to each other. That's one goal. But there's another goal of sex, and it's probably the main one, even more important than that one. And that's what he's thinking of here. Sex is to be an appetizer for something that is yet to come. 
It is a sign of what is ahead for us. It's a foreshadowing of the absolute ecstasy and joy that we will have when we are completely reunited with God himself. What would it look like, just a hypothetical, if all the pledged and promised people here today were to show up next Sunday in red? What would it say? It would mean that each of us have a person in our life that we've promised to share everything with, our whole self, our soul and body, and it would mean that that someone sees us completely just as we are and doesn't just tolerate being with us, but delights in us. That's what wearing red would mean. I have a spouse that sees me and knows me to my core and delights in me anyway, as though I were holy and without blemish at all. And that's what you're after when it comes to sex. Lust can't give that to you. Porn can't give that to you. Sex before a promise can't give that to you. Fantasizing about Fifty Shades can't give that to you. Only God can give that to you. And he lets you get a glimpse of it when you keep the fire in the fireplace. And so let's say this. Self-control or the wrecking of lust in our life comes by maintaining such a high view of this God-given gift of sex that it immediately exposes lust for what it is. It's just a cheap forgery of the real pleasure that God wants for you. It's counterfeit. It dehumanizes us. It lies to us. It shames us. It forces us to hide, and it breaks our relationships. So how, how might this work, keeping a high view of our sexuality? In a sermon about lust, a preacher gave this as a hypothetical. He said, lust dehumanizes the other. In fact, lust needs to dehumanize the other. Lust doesn't work when the other person is fully human. That's why exotic dancers always have fake stage names. You would never have a dancer use her real name. Why not? Because that gets in the way of the objectification that lust needs. A man leering at an exotic dancer doesn't want to know her real name. A great way to empty out a club would be to stand up before the dancer comes out on stage and say, this is Sultry Susan, but her real name is Mary Walensky, and she has four brothers and sisters, and her parents divorced when she was five, and her mother's an alcoholic. And she's been married twice, but her last husband beat her up. And she has two kids, and she's struggling to get by. She likes dogs, and she would love to be a dental hygienist someday. That would empty out the room. An introduction like that would short-circuit the lust because it would put intimacy and humanity back into the picture. Lust does not want the full humanity of the person with her needs and her vulnerabilities. He ends this way. Lust wants low lights, a haze of alcohol, and lots of lies. How do we kill it? We turn on the light. We view sex so gloriously that it puts lust in its place. There's one more thing we need to look at in this passage, and it's God himself. How do we wreck lust? God gives us the answer, verse 21. 
But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Sometimes to be obedient means to suffer. Joseph found that to be true. He did everything right. He refused. He was obedient. And his incredible integrity threw him in prison. But it was also actually what saved him. One of the things that we know about this uh, text is that this charge that Potiphar's wife brings against Joseph was actually a capital offense. For a slave to have actually acted in this way meant the death penalty. And yet, Potiphar doesn't kill Joseph. He doesn't execute him. And that tells us that Joseph's integrity was so great that there must have been a doubt in Potiphar's mind about what his wife was telling him. He wasn't convinced that what she was telling him was the truth. And so he had Joseph put in prison instead of giving him the death penalty. And his integrity saved him. But on the other hand, it really doesn't seem like it rewarded him much, does it? I mean, he's still the one that is looked on as having fault. He's still the one that's cast away. He's still the one that's thrown in prison. In this room today, there are many different situations going on. Some of us have been married for a while. Some of us have been married for a minute. Some of us are single and we're fine with it. Some of us are single and we're hoping not to be. Some of us are are really young and we're wrestling with this monster called sexuality. And some of us are more seasoned and we're wondering why we're still wrestling with this monster called sexuality. It really doesn't matter what corner you're coming from. When you choose to follow the sexual ethic of Jesus, you are choosing to swim against the stream in our culture. You make this commitment, you'll be laughed at. You'll be mocked, you'll be imprisoned by the thought leaders of the day. And the great irony of that is this, that if we would follow Jesus' sexual ethic, it is the solution to all of our sexual problems. Follow Jesus in this way. There's no more Me Too movement. There's no no more abuse. There's no more souls scattered to the wind. There's no more trafficking. There's no more exploitation. None of it. It's all gone. If we just do this. But if you do this, even still, you'll be cast away as the one that is backward and repressed. Here's how we need to take heart today. God was with Joseph, and he will be with you too. Almost all of us in here are looking at this text and thinking, of course, of course God was with Joseph. He was a rock. He obeyed. He refused. He wadded up lust like a little paper ball and threw it in the trash can in the corner. Of course God would be with Joseph. But I'm not like Joseph. I read the story, and I'm more like Potiphar's wife. And it's a struggle. And I don't feel like I can win most days. What can God possibly say to me? 
and I can tell you exactly what he would say to you because he's already said it. Neither do I condemn you. When the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 is brought to Jesus, this is what he said. He did not say that she wasn't guilty. Everyone knew, including Jesus, that she was guilty. But he says, you're not condemned. Now that doesn't make sense. Step into any courtroom where someone is found guilty and the next thing that follows that is sentencing, right? Condemnation always follows a guilty verdict, but not here. Jesus says, you're guilty, but you're not condemned. How can he say that? The only way that he can say that to her is because he knows he is the one who will take the condemnation on himself. Is there anybody here to throw rocks at you? I'm not going to throw a rock at you either because I'm going to take them instead. I'm going to take the condemnation that you should get on a cross for you. I will take the nails. I will take the thorns. I will take a spear for your guilty verdict. And when I do, now there is no condemnation left. Neither do I condemn you. And that same offer is for us. There is no one in this room that is sinless in this area of lust. We all deserve rocks. Jesus offers to take them for us. It is the steadfast love of God that steps up and is the answer to lust. And for that matter, is the answer to pride and anger and sloth and envy and greed and gluttony. Jesus gives us the gift of salvation from all of these sins if we just simply come to him and say, I'm guilty. If we name our sin to him, he will say peace to us. But if we say peace to ourselves, he will name our sin. That's how it works. And so today we have an opportunity to just name our sin, to fall at the feet of Jesus, to say, have mercy. And he will. Neither do I condemn you. We're going to sing together. I'd like you to stand. And maybe during this time of worship, we could just come to the front of the stage and we could just kneel and say, God, I'm guilty. Forgive me.